So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we're working through this incredible book of Acts about the early church, verse by verse. And this morning, we were going to look at verses 1 through 16. I think I'm only going to make it uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, But nevertheless, I'll read the entire passage. We'll jump into our time. The title for this morning's message is, When God Shuts One Door, He Opens Another. When he shuts one door, he opens another. Luke writes this in Acts 16, starting in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galicia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Maesia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Maesia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning as we've been thinking about your sovereign glory over all the earth, as we've been singing songs of praise to you, as we have read through this particular passage, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to both think through and understand what it is that that you want us to learn today so that we can also apply some of those same principles as we move throughout life in day-to-day fashion, a life of faith, a life of trust, a life of worship and obedience to you. So be glorified in our time together in your word today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the late 19th century, cotton was king in South Alabama. Cotton was also the sole crop that brought prosperity to that part of the country. And in the early 20th century, a natural disaster occurred. The Mexican bull weevil crossed into Texas and then spread throughout the south from there. And those little bull weevils loved cotton. And by 1915, the farmers in South Alabama were broke. 
One farmer decided to try to grow peanuts, and in the first year, he produced an abundant harvest of over 6,000 bushels. Other farmers planted peanuts and other crops, and soon, prosperity returned. What was seen first to be a disaster or a dead end, a closed door for cotton, actually became a tremendous blessing because the farmers were forced to diversify. In 1919, the city of Enterprise, Alabama, erected a monument to the bull weevil. That's a great attitude. When one door is shut, don't be disappointed. It could be that God's pointing you in a different direction. Now, in the Bible, an open door refers to an opportunity to preach the gospel. It refers to having access to a certain area in order to evangelize the lost with the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, a closed door means that a certain area has been denied or blocked for that time. At the end of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey, when they got back to their sending church in Antioch, Acts 14.27 says, and when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Again, in the Bible, typically open doors, almost always, I haven't found any passages where it doesn't somehow have to do with the direction of mission work or evangelizing or sharing the gospel. In fact, Paul mentions that same terminology about a door being opened in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Again, Colossians 4, 3, and at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And so here, in the same way, in our passage of Acts 16, we're looking at this morning when God said no to Paul about going in a certain direction, he said yes to something better. And sometimes our disappointments in what we thought we were going to do for the Lord become God's way of leading us in another direction to glorify him. So don't let closed doors bother you. The opportunities we think of as failures and problems often end up as blessings in disguise. And the door for a certain gospel opportunity could be temporarily closed. And if you were to force your way through it right now, it would be premature. God is always at work, though. He's always working in your life. And he's always working behind the scenes, as well as in the background, lining up people and circumstances and the right timing to carry out his plan for the gospel to go forth. God is always bringing about closed doors because he always has better opportunities behind open doors as he directs us in his plan for our lives. And so we got to understand this morning that as we talk about closed doors and open doors, the temptation would be to think of that as the cliche, you know, from the sound of music. When God closes a door, somewhere he opens a window, you know, and in part, like, we like that. Like, it's like, it's encouraging, it's an optimistic message, and in the sound of music, you know, it's like, it just fits. 
And yet when we look at the scripture, we're just simply saying, be careful that you're not looking at circumstances with such authority and power in your life that you're kind of taking the meaning from scripture to be so circumstantially based that it's not word driven. And at the same time, here this morning, we're going to see that God ordained those circumstances of those closed doors for Paul to go exactly where he wanted him to go. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. When God shuts one door, he opens another. And in order to help us better understand that from this text, I've outlined it in three headings this morning, the character of Timothy, verses 1 through 5, the call to Macedonia, verses 6 through 10, and then the conversion of Lydia, verses 11 through 15. I don't think we're going to make it to that last heading this morning, but I wanted you to see the progression of where we're going probably for next week. So let's start with number one this morning, the character of Timothy. Verses one through five, we're just looking at verses one and two, that first blank there in your outline says, Timothy had a good reputation. Timothy had a good reputation. So remember, Paul and Barnabas are done with their first missionary journey. They've also had the Jerusalem Council, which delineated and determined a few very specific doctrinal matters. Paul and Barnabas then had a little bit of a sharp disagreement as they're getting ready for their second missionary journey. Remember, they're getting ready to kind of go back out on the field at the end of chapter 15 and verse 36 and 37. Paul says to Barnabas, let us visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. If you remember, we discussed last time we were in this text that on their first missionary journey, Along the way, John Mark defected. At some point, he left. He left Paul and Barnabas there on their mission trip, and he went back to Jerusalem, and that bugged Paul. It got under his skin a little bit. He felt like maybe Timothy wasn't mature enough and ready for the hard work uh, of the ministry. John Mark, excuse me, that he thought John Mark wasn't quite mature enough or ready for the hard work of the ministry. And yet, Barnabas was more of the softer, uh, people-oriented encourager who was saying, hey, maybe we need to take him again. And they had a sharp disagreement, so they parted ways. Remember that? So Barnabas took with him John Mark, his cousin, and they went to the Isle of Cyprus and continued there. And Paul took with him a new person that was introduced to us last time, uh, took with him Silas, and they began to head to the area of Syria and Cilicia to strengthen the churches. And so here in verse 1, It says that Paul, this is the beginning of his second missionary journey, it's going to be him and Silas, and they come to Derbe and to Lystra. And it was there that they met this young disciple named Timothy. So Paul came to Derbe, to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And so as Paul enters in here to Derbe and Lystra, this is where they met Timothy. Now Timothy is a, is a young man. He's most likely a newer convert. He could have been in his late teens or his early 20s, but he seemed to have the kind of character that impressed Paul as Paul is kind of being reacquainted with him. It's likely that Paul had even seen Timothy before on that first missionary journey in Lystra. In fact, if you'll look back at Acts 14, look back at Acts 14 verses 19 and 20, this might be where he saw Timothy the first time when it was Paul and Barnabas coming through. And they were preaching there in Lystra, but some of the unbelieving Jews from Antioch, which is in Syria, or excuse me, this Antioch was the one, uh, not the one in Syria, but the other Antioch in Pisidia and Iconium, 
14, 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So again, Paul's preaching the gospel. Some of the Jews don't like it, and he's, he's preaching to Gentiles, telling them they can be part of the kingdom. So some of them chase him throughout his missionary journey, and when they got to Lystra, they stoned him, drug him outside of the city, and they left him for dead. And verse 20 says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. There are many commentaries that would state that right there in verse 20 when it says, but when the disciples gathered about him, that would have been some of the newer, stronger, bold converts there in Lystra. And that it's very likely that Timothy, as a young man who's growing in his faith, could have been one of those who came out, saw what happened, supported Paul, they prayed over him, he was divinely resuscitated, and he got back up and continues that missionary journey. Could have been Timothy. We don't know for a fact, but it's likely that he could have been there and have already faced, I mean, certainly he heard about that, whether he was actually there or not. And then we kind of get to know that Timothy uh, here in this passage is the son of a Jewish woman and, and, and the son of a Greek father. And being a son of a Jewish woman, we know what her name is, according to 2 Timothy 1.5, as well as Timothy's grandmother's name. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Paul, talking to Timothy, a little bit later we hear, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So just learning a little bit about Timothy. He's from a godly heritage. He had a Jewish background, but they came to saving faith. His grandmother, Lois, and his mom, Lewis, had a Greek father. And Timothy is now going to be playing an important key role in Paul's life. And Timothy is going to be referred to in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, as a true child in the faith to Paul. So Paul had spiritual children. He had special relationships with young men that he invested and discipled and that would join him in ministry and would later be appointed to do serious ministry work. And so as Timothy continued to grow in his spiritual maturity, he really did become a right-hand man to Paul. In fact, Paul says about Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4.17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Again, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3.2, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. One last time, Philippians 2.19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And so we learn that Timothy, while we're just being introduced to him right now in Acts, we know throughout the scripture, he becomes a stalwart of the faith. And while Timothy had a Jewish mother, back to our text here in Acts 16, his father was a Greek. And the verb tense and the original language indicates that Timothy's father had most likely already passed away. We're not giving his, uh, given his name and the way the verb tense is, it seems like he's probably passed away. But being both Jew and Gentile, Timothy had access to both cultures. And this was an important advantage to the missionary strategy of the time. Remember, Paul is preaching the gospel, but he goes into the synagogue, but he's trying to reach the Gentiles. And to have somebody on his team that has 
heritage in Judaism or in, in Jews who are now becoming Christians and to have some type of heritage in the Greek world would be a fantastic asset to have on his team. Plus, this young man is a godly man. And so Timothy, as a young man, was most likely, I told you, in his late teens or early 20s, and Timothy had that, verse 2 says, he kind of had that good reputation. Verse 2, again, he's well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Having a, a good reputation is something that honors the Lord. I mean, in one sense, we shouldn't care what anybody thinks about us. Right? But in another sense, we should care what God thinks about us. And if we're walking in obedience to God and we're walking in faith, then people who do see us, particularly those who are in the church, are going to be blessed. They're going to be encouraged. They're going to be like, hey, there goes a godly man. That young man right there is seeking the Lord. I know a little bit about his family, and I know they're, they're, they're not perfect, but he's a godly man. And that's kind of where Timothy was. He was somebody that had been setting a good example. He had been walking in obedience to God's word. He had been walking, we can assume, in the spirit more than he was in the flesh. He, he was stirring others up by love and good deeds. It's a, what a wonderful thing for someone to say of you as a Christian that you have a good reputation, that you're spoken well of. Again, it's not the reputation that we seek, it's God that we seek. But as we seek God and obey him, the reputation is just something that comes along with it. And if you're living for God with a humble heart and a total dependence on him, then you are going to have a good reputation. A good reputation honors God. A good reputation magnifies Christ. A good reputation is only achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit. A good reputation is a bold witness to the gospel. A good reputation announces to the world that you can change, that you can be a blessing, that you can be exactly what God wants you to be and to be an instrument in his hands used for further ministry. That's what we see with Timothy. I just want you to get a little bit excited about him because he plays a big part in the rest of the New Testament as we see him uh, being introduced to us here in Acts 16, verses 1 through 2. And with that in mind, let's look at verse 3. Your next blank says, Timothy was willing to be circumcised. He's willing to be circumcised. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right, this is getting into it right here. Paul wanted Timothy to go with them. I told you he had a good reputation. He's familiar with his grandmother and his mother. He's both Jewish and Greek. And he's like, that's my guy. Got a great reputation. He had, he had appreciated the fact he had matured in his faith. And now it's time for Timothy to surrender to the ministry, if you will. It's time for Timothy to travel abroad, to leave Lystra, and to go with Paul and Silas and preach the gospel wherever it is that God would take them. He had heard the gospel preached in his hometown, and now he's going to be helping Paul and, and himself preaching the gospel in other towns. And only one thing stood in Timothy's way. And according to verse 3 is that one thing that stood in his way is, is that he had not been circumcised. Now, no doubt, this was from the influence of his Greek father who didn't see the need to circumcise his son since he wasn't Jewish. And since Timothy grew up outside of Israel, circumcision was not prominent in his main culture, though it was still practiced by devout Jews. And Paul knew that in order for Timothy to be welcomed in the synagogues where Paul had been preaching the gospel on many occasions, that it would be better to have Timothy circumcised 
so that he could have full acceptance. And what I find interesting here is that there seems to be no discussion with Timothy. And at the same time, there seems to be no hesitation that Timothy has to this idea being circumcised. There's no pushback that Timothy gives. Timothy presumably accepted Paul's wisdom and leadership on the matter and was circumcised. And all I'm saying is, I'm not so sure I could do that. (laughs) I'm saying like, hey, Paul, let's get a second opinion. Like, hey, Paul, you've already had a huge disagreement with Barnabas. Maybe you're just like this really prideful person who thinks everything you think of is the right way to do it. You can skin a cat different ways. I think that's, I probably would have had a little conversation with Paul. Who's with me? Come on, don't make me stand up here alone. You're like, hey, Paul, we got to talk about this. I mean, didn't the Jerusalem council just determine that you don't have to be circumcised? There were other things that they emphasized, but not that. So what in the world is going on here? It's just interesting that it just kind of so quickly just is mentioned in the text. I probably would have wanted to have another Council, You know, let's do one of those church council things and really discuss this. And so I find this interesting for two reasons. Again, number one, this isn't in your notes, but just discussing it here. When the Judaizers showed up in Antioch at the beginning of Acts 15, look at chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Remember that? That's what prompted the Jerusalem council, which decided that circumcision was not required for salvation. In fact, coming out of the Jerusalem council was not a request for Gentile believers to be circumcised, but rather that they would abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what had been strangled, and from blood. Nothing was mentioned about circumcised. So why is Paul having Timothy circumcised? Answer, it is simply a missionary strategy. It is a missionary strategy, as I've already told you. Well, look, I got this guy. He's Hebrew. He's Greek. We're going into Hebrew areas. If he's not circumcised, he may not even be welcomed into the synagogue. If he is, at least we can go in and preach, and we're going to preach the true gospel. We're not going to preach a gospel of circumcision, but just, it'll just help us get in the door. The second reason I find this so interesting this missionary strategy of having Timothy circumcised, I find it interesting because it's the exact opposite of what happens to Titus in Galatians chapter 2. So hold your place here in Acts 16. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, because we see a very similar thing happen, and yet we have the opposite approach, and I just want to make sure you see it so as you wrestle through Scripture, you have a good way of understanding why is it this way in one place and something different in another place. So Galatians chapter 2, obviously a lot of legalism going on in the church of Galatia. There was a lot of Judaizers pressing, again, for circumcision as a part of salvation. It was in generally the same area that had already been covered in Paul's first missionary journey and where he'll also be in his second missionary journey. And we'll just go straight to Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, where he writes, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we may have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
So what's going on in this situation? Why is he telling Titus that he does not have to be circumcised? Because he also has that Greek heritage. Well, again, in this situation in Galatia, Paul was not about to let Titus be forced to be circumcised because he was a Greek. The reason is that, that in this particular situation, the false teachers were demanding that Titus come under the slavery of the Old Testament rite of circumcision. So the way they were emphasizing it was, again, a legalistic part of your salvation type argument. And in that particular case, Paul is saying about Titus that we're not going to yield for one minute. In fact, in this case, it was better for Titus not to be circumcised so as to clearly present the gospel being by faith alone and not by circumcision or any Mosaic covenant-keeping work. And so how did Paul know what to do in each situation? Well, he sought wisdom, he acted in the spirit, he employed the best strategy in each situation that had different contexts that warranted different actions. You understand? In one action, it was like better for Timothy to be circumcised as a missionary strategy, not as a part of his salvation. That's Acts 16. But in Galatians chapter 2, it was better to say, hey, we're not going to have Titus get circumcised because they think that is part of your salvation. And so we're not going to do it in this instance. You have to have wisdom in every area of your life. And when you are in a similar situation where you say, well, in this situation, I might do this, but in this situation, I might do this. I pray that when you come to those type of situations that you would ask God to give you wisdom, that you would research the scripture, that you would seek godly counsel, that you would pray for a pure heart, and that you would make a decision that to the best of your ability would honor Christ, that would help proclaim the gospel with great clarity, whatever you face. I mean, there's no one-size-fits-all answer. It's case by case and being willing to adapt and apply wisdom in each situation. But what we do see with Timothy, back to Acts 16, is we see incredible humility. We see a willingness to suffer physically in order to further opportunities for the gospel. We see God give him grace to make this sacrifice for the kingdom of God. I think that's a big deal. I think it's a big deal that showed Timothy had that kind of humility and willingness to, in a sense, become all things to all people so as to win some, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And so kind of moving ahead with that, we see in verses 4 through 5, back in Acts 16, your next blank, Timothy joined the gospel mission. He joined the gospel mission. Verses four and five, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So what are we seeing in these verses? Well, as they continue their journey, we now have Paul and Silas who've been on this second missionary journey all along. Now they add to their number Timothy and they continue preaching the gospel. Notice that verse four has a clear emphasis on what had been decided in Jerusalem. That would be, again, the reference to the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. The decisions that had been made is what they were preaching and delivering to the other people. So even though Timothy got circumcised, they're preaching like, hey, according to the Jerusalem Council, circumcision is not a part of salvation, but I've been circumcised. I mean, I don't even know if he said it, but he was observed maybe that he had been so that he had access to the Jewish people. And again, the observances, when it says there, uh, the observances had been reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Again, those, those observances were that salvation uh, is by faith 
and by faith alone, circumcision or law keeping would not be added to faith as a condition for being saved. Number two, they had decided at the Jerusalem Council that sexual immorality was forbidden for all believers of all time, particularly for Gentiles who really struggle with that as a besetting sin. And then number three, that meat offered to idols and meat uh, from animals that had been strangled and blood was forbidden. These three dietary restrictions were not matters essential to salvation, but to facilitate fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers. Some of those instructions later, such as meat sacrificed to idols, would be adapted in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. So we discussed all that. I'm just saying that's part of what they're preaching and teaching as they go forth, because that was the question people had everywhere. When we get saved, do we continue to keep Mosaic Covenant or not? And Paul, Silas, and Timothy were faithful to continue in the gospel mission, the goal of missions and evangelism. Notice how it says in verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. The, the ultimate goal of mission work is not to have some kind of, kind of, of huge response to, to an altar call or to have a huge crusade and thousands of people come forward. I mean, that could be a great thing, and I'm not against it. I'm just saying that's not necessarily what biblical evangelism is. It's seeing the gospel be preached. It's seeing hearts be converted, and then people walking in obedience. And if that happens one-on-one, that's awesome. If it happens to happen in a big crusade, that's fine. But the point is that they're being faithful to preach the word and to call people to repent and to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that churches that are strong in gospel teaching ought to see members being added to their church. There ought to be the stirring of the baptismal waters that we talk about sometimes because it means people are regularly coming to saving faith. It may be children in the church that are getting older. Hopefully, there's also those in the church who thought they were saved and they haven't yet truly repented and followed Christ. And of course, from the community and from the area that the church is reaching, it could definitely be growing numerically. I just want to be careful as I see that word there, they're increasing in numbers daily because there's a lot of people in the church growth movement that would say, if you don't have a mega church, then God has removed his blessing from your assembly. And that's just not true. There's lots of churches that have 50 people, 100 people, you know, 300 people, 500 people. We don't, you don't have to be a 5,000 member church to be like, oh, well, God's really showing up there, but he's not showing up over here. And I just want to make sure as a church, we understand that what matters to the Lord is that we're being pleasing to him, that we're being pleasing to him, that we're being faithful to preach God's word and to walk in obedience to God's word. And part of being fruitful is bearing the fruit of the spirit that in your body, however big it is, as a local church body is filled with joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's being fruitful when you're applying the work of the Spirit in your life. It's not necessarily a focus on size. And yet we are encouraged that they are increasing in their numbers daily. Praise the Lord for how he was adding to the church throughout the book of Acts. All right, well, now that we've seen the character of Timothy, let's move to our second heading for this morning, the call to Macedonia. Your next blank says, some places were off limits for now. They were off limits for now, verses six and seven. And they, uh, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to my Mysia, I'm just really butchering that word, right? I'm gonna go to a doctoral candidate. Josh Dojero, how do you say that word? 
Mysia. All right, there we go. I got it. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. How am I doing on that one, Josh? Okay. Okay, closer. All right, so they, they, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but when the Spirit of Jesus, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. All right, obviously, that's what we're talking about with closed doors. In this passage, twice, two verses in a row, the Holy Spirit did not uh, forbid, forbade them from going to Asia, and now the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bithynia. So what's going on here? Why are these doors closed? After visiting some of the places that Paul had been before, he's now trying to direct the ministry, if you will, into the full province of Asia, and that region was an important one. And I will say to you that later, he does go into these areas. That's where we see uh, there's, there's cities there such as Ephesus and Smyrna, Philadelphia, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, those seven churches of Revelation. But for now, it's like, it's not like God didn't want Asians to become Christians, right? But for now, he's saying that area is off limits. I'm redirecting you in a different area. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I mean, uh, all we can say from this is that man has his strategies and God has his. And in the Bible, God sovereignly directed certain people for certain purposes, to certain places, to fulfill his will. And how exactly and why the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into Asia, we're simply not told. What we do know, as the mission team went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, they were faithful to preaching the gospel wherever they did go. And in some time there, the way of Asia was blocked. The missionaries now turned north to Mysia. And when they were in the region north of Asia in Mysia, they tried to go further north into Bithynia. And then you have the spirit of Jesus that did not permit them. Again, Asia needed the gospel just as any place needs the gospel. But it simply wasn't God's time. The Lord had closed the door. And we can imagine that Paul may have been disappointed and perhaps a bit discouraged. I mean, up to this point in this journey, everything had been going really well. They had added Timothy, they're preaching the gospel, they had revisited some of the churches they'd been to, they're trying to go into these new areas, and certainly some of these closed doors would have come as a great surprise. It is somewhat comforting to know that even the apostles were not always clear on why God was orchestrating certain things the way he was. God planned for the message of the gospel to get there at another time, as we'll see actually in Acts chapter 19, when Paul does indeed go into that area and he preaches the gospel in Ephesus. But in this chapter, that door is closed. And wise would be the man who would heed that reality. You know, to illustrate the idea of that door being closed, there's a story told about a father who was vacationing with his family who came across a large sign that read, road closed, do not enter. The man proceeded around that sign because he was confident that he could save the family time in their vacation. Anybody have a dad like that? You figure out you could save time. And after a few miles of successful navigation, uh, he began to boast about his gift of discernment. Nothing was going to stop this persistent road warrior. However, his proud smile was quickly replaced by humble sweat when the road led to a washed-out bridge. 
So he turned the car around and retraced his tracks to the main road, and when he arrived at the original warning sign, he was greeted by large letters on the back of the sign that said, Welcome back, stupid. (laughs) Sometimes we can have the utmost confidence in ourselves to figure out issues and to fix our problems or think we always know the way, but we let ourselves down. Confidence is only as good as the object or the source that it's placed in. And when going through life, the wise person places their confidence in an all-knowing, all-powerful God. Remember the principle that we all know so well in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And so what we see here is what happened was, your next verse, verse 8, they kept moving in the right direction. They kept moving, your next blank, in the right direction, verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. They passed by Mysia because the door was closed, and now they're heading towards Troas. When God encountered excuse me, when Paul encountered the closed doors at Galatia and Mysia, he didn't give up and returned to Antioch. That's one thing that we can note. He didn't just be like, well, the door's closed. I shouldn't have even come. I'm just going to go back to Antioch and just sit there. He didn't sulk. He didn't complain. The worst thing he could have done would have been to just sit still and say, okay, God, I'm not moving until you show me which way to go. Instead, He kept on moving. He took another direction. He headed west. And as he was moving west towards Troas, God directed him there. And we're going to see how the gospel then takes root in Europe. Have you ever been excited about an opportunity and suddenly found the door closed? The worst thing that you could do is just camp out at that closed door. I would encourage you instead, don't keep moving. Just start moving in the direction that you know that you can move and honor God. And as you move, he will direct your paths. And you may say again, well, what about waiting on the Lord? Well, waiting, let me remind you, is not just a passive experience. Waiting on the Lord is acting in faith and waiting in the light that he has shown us through his word. So in other words, you don't want to just sit there idle, cross your arms and be like, well, I can't do anything because that door is closed. There is an important principle that you could call spiritual momentum. Think about this. It's easier, in a sense, for God to direct a person if he or she is already in the motion of serving him. There was a boat that was, if there was a boat that was sitting dead in still water, that boat can't be moved by turning the rudder. Get the idea, you ever been out on the lake and you turn off the engine and you sit there and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, we want to go over here. Well, if you have the, you know, if you don't have any momentum and you just turn the rudder, where's the boat going to go? Nowhere. But if you turn on the troll motor or you turn on the motor slightly and you're just kind of idling, putting along and you turn the rudder, now you can steer it where you want to go. And we're just simply saying that a boat sitting dead in the water can't be turned by the rudder. That vessel is dead in the water and it has to have some forward motion in order for the rudder to be effective. And in the same way, I'm just using that illustratively to say if you're seeking God's direction, don't just sit still. If you do, you're dead in the water. And if you are active in serving God anywhere you can, it's easier, probably be more clear for him to direct you into different paths of service. So that's what's happening in verse eight. Doors are shut, 
It's not sitting still. He moves to Troas, and as they move and travel to Troas, which was a port on the Aegean Sea, they knew that God would eventually reveal where he wanted them to go if they kept moving. And we could be reminded of being still and knowing that he is God and that he will be exalted in the nations and on the earth. And as we wait for the Lord, Psalm 130 verse 5 says, as my soul waits in his word, I place my hope. And so it's like Paul's waiting, but he's hoping, he's trusting, he's continuing in the area that he knows he can be. And sometimes it's in those moments or days or those weeks or those months or those years of waiting on the Lord that can be some of the most fruitful times of our lives. And then we read in verses 9 and 10, your next blank, that God will reveal more when he's ready. He will reveal more when he's ready. A vision. So he's there in Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to go and preach the gospel to them. So again, they're in Troas, can't go into Asia, can't go into Mysia, and at night, God gave Paul a vision, a vision of a man, a man of Macedonia that was calling him to come over and to help And Macedonia was the northern part of Greece, and guess what? It was just due west of Troas. And whether consciously or not, Macedonia and all of Europe needed the gospel of redeeming grace. And so the Lord had been closing doors in Asia so that his servants would carry the good news into Europe. And at this moment, when Paul saw the vision, he knew. One door was closed, Another door was closed, and then God opened this door for Paul to go into Macedonia to preach the gospel to them. When God made it clear, Paul did not hesitate, but immediately he sought to go to Macedonia. Notice again there in verse 9, he didn't wait, he didn't linger, he didn't ask questions, he just went. He was waiting for this direction and glad to do it. And also want to point out here in verse 10 that we see the first use of the plural pronoun we. Verse 10, like it says, and when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we, that that pronoun we, now indicates that Luke, who's the author of this uh, book, is now joining Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's significant because we know that Luke accompanies Paul through much of the New Testament. The New Testament's clear, in fact, that Luke and Paul were companions, brothers serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They, They traveled together. They faced adversities together, and they labor to promote the truth. Both Paul and Luke wrote extensive portions of the New Testament, They both understood the gospel clearly and both had a good grasp of what the future had in store for Gentiles as well as for Israel. And on a few occasions, Paul directly refers to Luke as such, and like Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Again, we see him refer to Luke in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. And one final time in Philemon, verse 24, he says that, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow uh, workers. So what, what we're seeing, again, in our passage today is that God is building his team. Paul and Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are now coming along, and that's part of what God's doing and saying, hey, don't go to Asia. 
I'm going to have Luke meet up with you in Troas. I'm going to have the Macedonian call. You're going to go this way. We'll do Asia later because it's God who's in control, not Paul. And so Paul had chosen uh, the right people. He had chosen, uh, God had chosen the right people. God had chosen the right direction. He had chosen everything about the timing of when and how they were to proceed. It's an incredible reminder that God's in control. He's the one that directs our course. And so as we think about that, I thought I'd take just a few moments and review for us what, we're, what we've been talking about, which is that heading in your outline there where it says the divine guidance given to the early church. Let's just take a moment because this is where we're at. This is where I was going to go to Lydia and just finish the sermon. And I'm like, nah, the Lord was speaking to me. He was telling me. <laughs> I'm throwing that out there for some of you guys because you know I'm, I'm kidding. But the, the, the idea is, you know what? We want to understand this just a little better, okay? Just a little bit better. So let's talk about it. Divine guidance given to the early church. There are at least five ways we see God giving divine guidance to the early church. Now, it is also true that the Lord Jesus had given a general strategy for all of his workers in Acts, in Acts 1.8, when he said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I know you want to say it with me. Are you ready? And you will receive power. One more time. And you will receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the general idea of what's going on behind Acts. But there's specific things that help the church make decisions. I want us to look at five of them. You ready? These are five areas of divine guidance God gave to the early church. Number one, he did it through scripture. He did it through the scriptures. If you remember, after the ascension, the beginning of Acts chapter 1, while the disciples were waiting, along with others in the upper room, they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and they were devoting themselves to prayer, and then Peter stood up, and he said in Acts 1, 16 through 20, he stood up and he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. So Jesus had ascended. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And they're kind of talking about this whole thing about Judas. Like Judas, he, he, he betrayed Jesus. He's now killed himself. What are we supposed to do while we're waiting for the Holy Spirit? Acts 1.18 says that this man, referring to Judas, acquired a field and with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. Acts 1.19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now here's what Peter says, Acts 1.20, he says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it and let another take his office. So while the apostles and the others gathered in the upper room are seeking direction the Holy Spirit brings to mind a psalm that comes from Psalm 55, verses 12 to 15, who tells us exactly what they're supposed to do about the vacant spot that Judas left when he bought the field, committed suicide. The Bible says that his camp is going to be desolate, let no one dwell in that area, it's to be, uh, to be abandoned. But then it says, let another take his office. And so, Peter's quoting that to give reassurance that what happened was part of God's plan. It had been foretold, and what they're supposed to do is to find someone else to take Judas's office. In this case, there was a clear scripture 
that instructed Peter on exactly what he was supposed to do, and they appointed Matthias to take Judas's place. Another way God guided the early church that we see here in Acts, number two, through visions. He guided them through visions and prophecies. There are at least five occasions that the Lord guided them through visions. Number one, you remember Ananias had a vision to come acknowledge Saul's conversion in Acts 9, as well as to pray over him that he might receive his sight. Number two, Cornelius had a vision where he was instructed to go send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter, Acts 10. Number three, Peter had a vision about the sheet that came down from heaven with all the animals in it, and Jesus said, kill and eat, again, Acts 10. Number four, Paul had a vision, that's what we're seeing here, in Acts 16 of the man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. That was divine direction, guidance, given that we're looking at in our text this morning. And then number five, Paul had another vision to keep preaching the truth in Corinth, for God had many people in that city who were his people, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10. So that's five visions that gave divine guidance to the early church, and there's also two prophecies. Five visions, two prophecies. The first prophecy was Agabus, who foretold that there would be a great famine over the whole world. We read about that in Acts 11, 27 through 30. And then Agabus had a second prophecy that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem that he gave in Acts 21, 10 through 12. So we're saying that divine guidance was given to the early church through visions and through prophecies. Number three, Another way that God gave divine guidance was through circumstances. He gave divine guidance through circumstances. At other times, the Christians were guided by circumstances. For instance, they were scattered or driven by persecution. Civil authorities asked Paul and Silas to leave Philippi. Later, Paul was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the authorities. The circumstance of Paul's appeal to Caesar determined his trip to Rome. And later, the shipwreck affected the timing and sequence of certain moves. So I'm just saying God sovereignly ordained specific circumstances that gave direction to which way are the early church to move now. Number four, another way God gave divine counsel was through the counsel of other Christians, through the counsel of other Christians. Sometimes guidance came through other people. The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. Later, the brothers in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Judas and Silas were sent out by the church at Jerusalem with Barnabas and Paul. Paul and Silas were commended by the brothers and set out on the second missionary journey. Paul took Timothy with him when he left Lystra. The Thessalonians sent Paul and Silas to Berea because of the threat of violence. The Bereans, in turn, later sent Paul away for the same reason. So all I'm saying is sometimes divine counsel was given as this, this church or these elders spoke to this person and said, you need to come with me. And it was taken as that was from God. That's what we see today with Paul going to Timothy and say, hey, I want you to come with me. God's called you to come with me. And he went with him to continue on that second missionary journey. In addition to all these methods of guidance, the fifth one that we see in the book of Acts is through direct divine revelation. Through direct divine revelation. There are several instances where men seem to have received divine communication directly. Think about it. God sent an angel to guide Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Acts 8, the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets and teachers at Antioch as they fasted and prayed. Paul and Timothy were forbidden, as we see in our text today, by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going to Bithynia. So what we're saying, to summarize, the early church received their guidance through scriptures, through visions and prophecies, through circumstances, through the counsel of other Christians, and through direct divine revelation. Question, how do we receive divine guidance today? Now, there are many who would say, well, Adam, you just did a wonderful job outlining what happened in the early church, and what happened in the early church is what happens today. I believe, people will say, that we ought to pursue the same thing, scripture, visions, prophecies, circumstances, counsel, and direct divine revelation from God. That's what a lot of people say today in this particular area about seeking divine guidance. But I have a different answer for you this morning. I would just simply keep it to one. God gives divine guidance through his word, through his word. In the Bible, God spoke through visions, through prophets, through dreams, through signs and wonders, and through direct divine revelation. But in these last days, Hebrews says, he has spoken to us through his son. Again, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. I think there's an indication there in Hebrews 1 to say, hey, just listen to Christ. Listen to Jesus as he reveals what he wanted to reveal in his word and then in the gospels. And then as the word, the living word continues to be given to us divinely by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the entire New Testament. And then once the New Testament has been closed at the canon, uh, the end of the canon, which I believe happened in 95 AD, God is no longer speaking directly, divinely to his people. He has already spoken through the scripture. And again, this is a, a debatable uh, position that I'm giving here, but I'm just saying if we have to be extremely careful because if you're walking around saying God spoke to me and God told me not to go here, but to go here, that's just a little bit of a strong statement that you just received a divine revelation from God. So my encouragement to you instead would be seek God's word, read the scripture, Pray, you heard it said this morning, Kim Gass is sitting in the middle of this situation that we're talking about. She's saying, I need wisdom because when I get back to Romania, I'm either gonna go to this city or this city. And I'm not so sure that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ is gonna close this door and I'm gonna hear from the woman of Macedonia, in her case, who's gonna open this door to make it that clear. I mean, if that happens, then please come back and testify to us. Because I'm not putting God in a box. I'm not saying that if that's what God wants to do, that's what he does. But that testimony is so often given without being verifiable that it causes a concern. And you know what I'm getting at is so many in the name of God told me have done so many things that are so embarrassing. And so what we have to do as a church today, to, while we can look at Acts and appreciate these five different ways of divine guidance today, we're just going to go to the scripture. Now, again, with the scripture, we're going to pray, we're going to ask for wisdom, we're going to seek godly counsel, and I'll go so far as to say is we can evaluate circumstances to see whether or not there's wisdom from observing what's happening. I mean, if God's sovereign in all things, then he brings about those circumstances for his glory and your good. 
which means if you apply to medical school and you don't get in, then you can pretty much understand that for right now, that door is closed for me to go to medical school. Why? Because I didn't get in. And God's sovereign over that circumstance. And if the door was open, it doesn't necessarily mean that's directly God telling you to go. He may want you to do something else. And that's why we have to pray for wisdom. Go back to the scripture because you could have godly motives for going to medical school. You could have, uh, you know, fleshly motives for going to a certain job or a certain school or dating a certain person. And just too many times, we, we, we want the direct answer, don't we? We just think, well, if I just pray about it, if I have a peace about it, you know, if somebody just tells me I have a sign, you know, I'm kind of thinking about it, and then someone else tells a story, and I'm like, oh! you know, that I'm just telling you, your life is going to be a mess. It will be. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying I haven't done that in the past. I have. I, I've made lots of decisions based on feelings, intuition, and uh, mystical uh, things that I, I, I assumed may be from God. And you've heard me teach on this before, so I feel like, man, I'm just opening up so many things at the end of the sermon. But I just want to uh, remind you about the importance of us going to God's word and understanding nothing else. Maybe we could just acknowledge Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. And I think what that passage is saying is that there's parts of God's will, his sovereign will, which is a secret. You don't know the future. You don't know all of his decrees. You don't know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. And yet God has determined in his sovereign wisdom and decreed all things. And in a sense, those things are a secret. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed, so God has a sovereign will, which is decreed that we don't know fully until it happens. And then God has his revealed will which is the scripture. God's will is God's word, giving us principles that would help direct us in general. And those are the things that God has revealed to us and they belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of his law. And I think that's a great reminder of what God really cares about is that you walk in obedience. And whether you end up majoring in this major or this major, or whether you move to this place or this place, but you can't move out of California, you know that, okay, you know that. That's right, that's right. You know, but the idea is that we want to search the scripture, pray for wisdom, make decisions, and we want to be careful about claiming that God gave us some type of divine revelation because you and I are not apostles. And you and I have to just be on guard that what we want to see and hear and think about is how God, when he closes a door, he opens another, primarily referring to gospel opportunities And at the same time, that concept does apply in natural everyday life, but we just want to be careful that we don't always just use it as a cliche. All right, that's the best I can do for the time we have for this morning. Maybe we'll hit on it a little bit more. If you have questions, you can come to me. Why don't we close in prayer and then we'll uh, sing this final song. You guys come on up as I pray. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at some of this mission endeavor strategy from the Apostle Paul, as he and uh, Silas were discerning what to do next, grabbing Timothy, being joined by Luke, uh, where they weren't to go, where they were to go, and just help us as they're here at the end trying to find some good common ground applications. While we certainly appreciate the clear direction given throughout the New Testament, we understand as well that what we have in our hands this morning is a copy of your word. 
and that all that we need for life and godliness is found right here. And as we do pray for wisdom and we seek more understanding, God, we want to also just walk by faith in the areas where we know we can obey. And we want to check our desires to make sure that when we make decisions that they would be honoring to you. And I pray for those here this morning who may be really struggling with a big decision, that they would be careful and guarded not to be influenced more by feelings than by the faith that we have in your word. And I pray that you would also just give us a freedom to, to move uh, and to act in ways that we know are in accordance with honoring you through an evangelistic heart, a desire to honor you in all things. So be glorified as we even think through, discuss these things further throughout our time of fellowship today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.